Hello, and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown for today, October the 19th. Uh, my name is Tom Hollingsworth, and I hope that you're all enjoying this crisp, cool fall weather, hopefully with a nice, crisp, cool gin and tonic, because today is International Gin and Tonic Day. Uh, so pour out one of your favorite juniper-flavored spirits with us. Um, Stephen Foskett's out again this week, but joining me, returning as my co-host, is my good friend, Mr. Max Mortiaro. Max, welcome back to the show. Hey, Tom. We've got a, a great news lineup here that we're definitely going to, want to bring your way. So, Max, you want to check the first story? Absolutely. So, Tom, uh, NVIDIA founder Jensen Huang and his wife Lori have donated $50 million to the Oregon State University, and they want to facilitate a new innovation complex. The research center should focus on artificial intelligence and material science, and the Wangs are both graduates of OSU, and a portion of the funds donated are expected to go towards building a new supercomputer on the campus. So, Tom, is this just goodwill, uh, or is there more to the story? So, I think it's a little bit of both, actually. One of the things you'll know if you've ever worked for a, a major university is that they love to go back to famous and or rich graduates and be like, hey, uh, we're starting this new uh, campaign. Could you possibly donate a few <clears throat> a dozen uh, million dollars to our to our fund? Uh, we'll, we'll put your name on something, which, I mean, Jensen Wong already actually has his name on something there at Oregon State. But I think more importantly, this uh, has something to do with a uh, friend Greg Farrow brought this up on the Network Break podcast a while back uh, over at PacketPushers.net. Uh, when you look at Taiwan, when you look at Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, they not only have like some of the best fabs in the world, but they also have some of the best education in the world. And not just in chip building, but in a lot of other things that kind of go into building chips. Specifically, things like material science, which is one of the things that Yinsen Wong is donating for. And I think that ultimately this is kind of a push by NVIDIA to globalize some of their manufacturing facilities. Because as we've seen with the economic conditions that are going on and a lot of people having hesitations about the political situation in China, they're wanting to diversify away from that, whether they're moving manufacturing uh, to Taiwan or potentially to Vietnam or India or other places. By creating an innovation center on Oregon State's campus, which is one of the most well-known high-tech uh, universities in the U.S. anyway, what they're effectively saying is, is that we want to start building out the kinds of support structures that work well to help facilitate chip manufacturing. Because we're already seeing a lot of fabs that are being built here in the U.S. by companies like Intel and AMD and eventually NVIDIA, but we need those support structures that go along with them in order to be able to really ramp up manufacturing. It would be like um, opening a school to teach people how to build skyscrapers without teaching them how to build the steel that goes into them or how to properly plumb them or all that other stuff. You've got to have the support structures to make it make sense. And I think that's where Jensen's going. And honestly, let's be fair, the way the NVIDIA stock is going, $50 million is a drop in the bucket after the tax write-off. So you know, good on the, the, the Wongs for making this happen. Um, I can't wait to see kind of where it goes from there. All right, Max, Infinidat is boosting their drive capacities. Uh, the block storage company says that they've moved to using 20 terabyte disks in their arrays. That has increased their capacities up to 70%. That means that their top end array now maxes out at around 17.28 uh, petabytes when you factor in compression. Comparison-wise, their previous top-end was only around 10 petabytes, you know, just a mere 10 petabytes. Uh, the increase in space has also allowed their high-end B4320 array to have a separated space for their immutable uh, storage area, which is used when you need to have backups that cannot be compromised when you have a security incident or something like that. Max, 
is this going to be a lure for potential Infinidat customers? Is this going to be something uh, current Infinidat customers can take advantage of in their next refresh cycle? I think it's uh, definitely interesting for uh, Infinidat customers. So let's just re recap a bit on Infinidat, right? So it's using HDD, so that takes a bit more real estate than SSDs or flash, if you will, you know, based on the form factor. Secondly, these are systems which are sold at rack scale. So it's not something that you just rack and stack in a small rack, you get a full rack of it. And usually the customers are targeting, they're targeting large enterprises, cloud service providers. So, you know, organizations which are seeking really large capacity. So when they order some stuff, it's at least a rack or more racks. So these are organizations, when you, when you buy at this scale, you're looking for capacity. And especially if you're looking into the HDD, that's something that you're looking for. So definitely the audience they're targeting, their customer base are uh, organizations which are seeking you know, large capacities and they're looking uh, these kind of storage efficiencies. Now, the other thing as well is you know, regarding these uh, dedicated or reserved area for immutable snapshots, I think that's probably also important uh, because that's uh, you know their InfiniGuard uh, solution is something that you know customers are really looking uh, at, especially in in the block storage space. So definitely uh, the the news are interesting at least for the customer base. So Tom, there were several news stories that popped up this week about new initiatives that all had a common team. The first was news that Keysight will be partnering with F5 and AMD to show off how 5G can scale to terabit scale during MWC Las Vegas, and I said terabit, not terabyte. The second is that Intel demonstrated a 5G testbed during innovation show back in September. The third is around cyber ratings, a discussion about a new round of firewall testing for both enterprise and data center. The common theme here, Keysight is providing the software that will power all this testing. Cyperf is the chosen test suite in all of the use cases. So Tom, why is Cyperf being put to work in all these scenarios? I think the honest answer is because Cyperf works. I mean, this is one of the things that you you see a lot. Um, I remember this, and it, by now it could honestly be an apocryphal story, about when Tesla was doing some of the IIHS safety testing. And um, you basically, the, the IIHS is the U.S. organization that allows you to basically say, well, you know, our car is rated for this kind of head-on head collision or this or that. And one of the things that, that Tesla founder Elon Musk was, was touting was the fact that their ratings were off the scale for safety. IIHS testbed, basically their Tesla uh, Model S, it, it exceeded the capability of the testbed. So how does, how does that come back to what we're talking about here with, with Cyperp? Well, if your test bed is not capable of certifying or providing the results, can you even really say that your 5G is capable of pushing terabit? Can you even say that your enterprise firewalls are capable of providing this kind of uh, throughput or uh, performance? So in a way, your test bed has to be built in order to provide the kinds of things that you want to be able to test for. Uh, the old uh, adage is, um, you know, Ginger Rogers did everything Fred Astaire did, only backwards in a high heels. With Cyperf from Keysight, they have to anticipate the kinds of loads that you're going to see from these tests and be able to exceed them to prove that they didn't just like top out at the very top of what the test bed is capable of providing. You know, it's like um, when you say your car is going really fast, well, how fast did it go? Well, I don't know how fast it went, but the speedometer thing went all the way to the side. So I lost track of it after, you know, 160 kilometers an hour. Well, does that mean that the car went 300 kilometers an hour? Well, we don't know because the testing, the, the, the notification system basically broke. And so I think that that's what a lot of companies are saying. Um, when they all pick the same platform, 
that kind of tells me that people build a good platform. When, you know, when everybody kind of accidentally ends up buying the same phone, the same laptop, uh, those kinds of things, everyone's like, oh, wow, they may, must make good stuff if everybody chooses them. And I think that this is kind of a thing that Keysight can hang their hat on is, you know, we might not be building the technology that pushes terabit um, technology, you know, terabit uh, things. We, may, we not, may not be the one who's testing some of the cool Intel stuff or making the Intel stuff, but we're the company that they all turn to to test it to make sure that it actually works right. And when you look at what Keysight and uh, ICSI and all of their other stuff they're doing with it, they're building test beds to provide that kind of assurance for companies. And if you don't think that that's a big issue, uh, hopefully nobody tried to do any Amazon Prime shopping this year because you know that during Prime Day, it tends to go into the crater and you know how big it is on Black Friday. Um, you want to be able to test your systems to make sure they're not going to go down under that kind of load. And that's where a company like Keysight can come into play. So I'm excited to hear a little bit more about how Cyperf performs on this and hopefully Keysight will be able to uh, provide a little bit more information into kind of the way they build these testing platforms. All right, Max. Um, Habana Labs is going to be laying off about 100 employees. Now, if the name sounds familiar, it's because it's an AI chip startup that was acquired by Intel back in 2019. And they had really been growing like wildfire inside of Intel until this latest round of news. Um, the bigger story, I think, though, is that Intel is reportedly going to be laying off a large number of people inside of the organization uh, since we've gotten this recent news that the PC market is taking a little bit of a downturn. Um, the number of employees that Habana Labs uh, has let go of is around 10% of their total workforce, and they're all based in Israel. Um, so it's kind of interesting to see how Habana Labs was acquired, how it's grown, and now how Intel's starting to take a look around and say, we need to start reducing headcount. Where are we going to do that? So, Max, my question to you as someone who kind of pays attention to these things in the news, is this kind of... Um, market trends forcing Intel to cut back on some things, or is this just Intel realizing maybe Habana had grown a little too big? Uh, you know, Tom, it's a really interesting story. First of all, you probably know a lot of history and uh, especially Roman history. So if we look at the numbers, 10% is uh, just a perfect thing for a decimation. Uh, so which makes me think that the, uh, the, the, the reason behind the slash down is not uh, led by, you know, performance issues within the Habana teams or, or something related to the performance of their solution, but more uh, part of the cuts which are affecting uh, Intel. You know, I think that probably Pat Gelsinger um, saw that he has to react somehow, and there have been slashing, you know, uh, and uh, cutting jobs at uh, kind of a rather worrying pace somehow. So uh, it kind of fits into that kind of framework. The other thing we have to think about is that, and, and we we're talking about that before. When Habana was acquired by Intel, it had around 200 people probably. And if you think about it, most of these folks were engineers, uh, you know, engineers and so on, people doing research. Of course, they had some functions, maybe they had some marketing people, some accounting whatsoever. But uh, when, when the company joined Intel, it has grown to around 900 team members. And you have to be thinking, you know, wow, what happened here? It has more than tripled, you know, it has quadrupled, almost quintupled somehow. What happened there? Have they been here hiring like four times the amount of researchers? Are these, you know, uh, other functions? You know, the thing is that they work as a kind of an independent team within Intel, but still you would think that there are some kind of efficiencies. Like they would have a common marketing team, maybe some back office function. So it's really weird, you know? So it, it's, 
you have to think as well in terms of the output. Did they hire that much people? Were they developing things five times faster? So it's it's kind of strange here. But but I think the bottom line here for our discussion is that it probably seems to be more related to the overall cut uh, at Intel rather than something which is really affecting Habana Labs uh, on its own. And so with that, I would like to uh, you know get to our fifth and uh, last uh, story for today, Tom. And uh, it should be uh, about you know playing a little game. So shall we play a game? Uh, the US Department of Energy is leveraging Cerebras for some heavy duty A gaming, AI gaming, sorry. The plan is to use the wafer scale chips to predict the result of reability tests on the US nuclear weapons arsenal. Due to global bans on testing, the majority of this work has been done by computers for a number of years. And with recent advances in AI and data modeling, there is now the opportunity to reduce calculation needed to provide data and instead use advanced algorithm to provide the necessary results. Cerebras, which demonstrated this technology at AI field date free, will be testing it with the government to see how well they can handle the mountain of data produced by the simulation. Tom, are we reaching a new phase uh, of AI-driven data collection here? I think we are. And I think the important thing to realize is that just how complex these calculations can be. And uh, just a, a real quick aside, um, you don't need to know how bad things can go when it comes to being nuclear when you uh, go back and look at the Castle Bravo test. The short version is it was the first U.S. thermonuclear weapon. And without sufficient testing, they, they made a, a little blunder in the material made that made up the bomb, and it ended up being two and a half times more powerful than it was intended, to the point where it annihilated the Bikini Atoll and created an international incident because it was a 15 megaton detonation. They were not expecting that. And the reason why is because they didn't have the ability to run simulations on the test to find out what would happen to the material whenever it basically became uh, energized with, uh, with particles during a nuclear explosion. And that incident actually started the process by which we no longer allow any kind of above ground, below ground, any kind of nuclear testing because of the, the potential hazards. So what happens now is, is that in order to test the yields of these things, in order to test their reliability, uh, to find out if they're still going to be you know, usable at a certain time, we run these all through computer simulations. Again, these are not easy to do. Like the, the, the computing power necessary to simulate a nuclear explosion is off the charts. And so effectively what the Department of Energy is now trialing is not, can we build a computer big enough to simulate a nuclear explosion? It's, can we take an advanced AI algorithm and use it to predict what the explosion will look like? It sounds similar, but it is radically different because one of them requires much less processing power. And if we can dial the algorithm in enough, we don't need to do the testing. We can say the algorithm will predict that with this much material at this age, in this casing, it will produce a result that looks like this. Now, everyone out there is probably shuddering because I know there's been a lot of talk of nuclear things going on recently, but the important thing to realize is that by using these simulations and by using these things, we will eventually get to a point where hopefully we won't need to use them ever. We can just say we can build this if we have to and we know we can use it to do this and so this is the department of energy of basically taking a, a bigger step forward to say hey maybe the solution to our problem isn't running all these trials it's figuring out a way to get to where we need to be using advanced AI algorithms and the fact that cerebrus is doing this is kind of an, uh, awesome like I, we mentioned go back and look at the uh, the presentation they did at ai field day three just to see how uh, crazy this wafer scale thing is 
Um, I think that there's a lot of potential here. And this is not something that anybody would have thought of even a year ago when they presented. Um, so, you know, kudos to them for making that happen. All right, Max, we had one more story we wanted to take a look at. It's one that's right up your alley because uh, it involves one of the, the big heavyweights in the industry. Uh, there are a lot of rumors swirling that there's interest in Nutanix being acquired or taken private. Uh, the number of reports appeared at the end of the week last week, kind of, you know, when the stock market was was headed into the weekend. And there's been rumors that discussions have been taking place with some private equity investors about buying up the outstanding shares in the company to take it off of Wall Street. Now, you're probably wondering, why is everybody wanting to buy Nutanix all of a sudden? Well, the company is valued at about $6 billion today. Sounds pretty impressive, right? It's down from the $9 billion that they were valued at last year, so it's a little bit of a bargain. However, it's not as big of a bargain as it was back in June of this year when they were down almost to $3 billion in valuation. So you can see how wildly the company has been swinging back and forth. Um, no companies specifically have been mentioned in the rumor mill as to companies that maybe possibly want to acquire Nutanix, but there are always companies that have been floated out there as potential buyers for it. Um, Nutanix was a pioneer in the hyper-converged industry, and they are one of the loudest voices in kind of the alternatives to what you would do with a traditional data center infrastructure. Max, you're someone who's worked with Nutanix over the years. You're very well versed in what's going on here. What do you think is going to happen? <laughs> so uh, let me uh, try to seek into my crystal ball to, to look a bit more into that. So maybe, first of all, uh, you know, Nutanix has uh, kind of, let some of the uh, innovation in HCI, as you say, so it kind of has put them into a very specific, uh, let's say, situation as a precursor somehow. Uh, they've uh, they went beyond that by building several services. They kind of changed ideas on the way, like building their cloud and this and that. But in the end, if we look at it, even if we go beyond the fact that they have a very solid hyperconverged platform and they have also their own. Uh, virtualization platform with the uh, AHV, their Acropolis hypervisor. They have also built a set of very interesting services, you know, that's services like uh, Nutanix files, Nutanix uh, objects, Nutanix volumes. So it kind of, kind of, uh, how to say that they get reach a level where they're maybe not as vocal as they used to be in the past, but where they have provided, uh, let's say, business value, you know, with their solution. No, the thing is, when we look at who's looking at acquiring them, so we've heard and read a lot of speculation. Some people say that it's a private equity fund, which is good for them, which would be, you know, maybe good for whoever owns Nutanix shares or for the investors, but I think it will really, really suck from a technology perspective. Sorry to use a bad word, if that's one. Uh, the, the other thing is, uh, Maybe it's a competitor, you know, I mean, not a competitor, but someone who's in the in the IT space, which will be much more interesting. The question is who, you know, because if you look at the companies and I can I can jump into some, let's say some kind of ideas about who it might be. Uh, frankly, I, I don't really know, but if you look, if you look by elimination, for example, you take companies such as NetApp, they have their own cloud strategy. Uh, they are all on multi-cloud and uh, they are into data management. And I think that's completely out of question for me that they will go into HCI. I may be fully wrong. If we look at Dell, even if they've separated from VMware, they have very, a very strong you know, tie-in into the VMware ecosystem. They have vSAN and so on. I mean, all of the things that VMware does. And therefore, you know, what's the value there of purchasing a competitor? So, if we look at it, if we do go by elimination, who's left? So it might be perhaps IBM, 
you know, that's one of the companies which comes to mind because they've been on a very big acquisition spree uh, with, uh, with uh, Red Hat recently and, and so on. That seems to me to be perhaps the best, but I don't know what you think about it, you know, from your own perspective. Well, I, I think it's interesting that, you know, uh, Diraj Pandey stepped down and, and they basically put kind of, let's be honest, they put a manager in place. The manager's job is to keep the lights on. Sometimes they do really well. Look at Tim Cook. Tim Cook's been keeping the lights on at Apple for a very long time. But the question is, what do you want to happen to Nutanix? Well, if you're a company that uses Nutanix, you want to be able to continue to use it. So your best exit strategy is to get bought. IBM is probably the least bad place that you could end up getting bought. They're not going to try to, you know, extract value out of the company. They're not going to try to, you know, synergize product lines. They're going to keep selling it. They're going to keep developing it. They're going to turn it into a tentpole that they can use along with Red Hat and all the other th stuff that they've been doing. Not the worst thing in the world. Worst thing in the world for the investors. Why? Well, if they get acquired, IBM's going to buy it with probably a stock transfer. Um, so you get IBM stock and you don't want IBM stock. You want money. You, you want to get out from underneath this valuation. So the stock people, you know what they want. They want to get paid. So what they want is a private equity investor to show up, buy out all the outstanding shares, float that value up, and then buy them out. And you know what that means. When private equity takes hold, everything kind of gets put behind the shell, and then we're going to see pieces and parts of Nutanix getting split off and sold to recoup the value of those investors. Great for the people who want to get paid. Not so great for the people who want to continue to use the stack. So it's a little bit of a catch-22. Do you want to get paid or do you want to be able to use the product? And the question is where the users are going to have the most voice in this. Because unfortunately, I think that the way that Silicon Valley has been headed for the last year, it's going to end up being bought by private equity and it's going to get parceled out and it's going to be turned into some conglomeration of something else. And I know that there are a lot of people right now that are absolutely skittish about what's happening between Broadcom and VMware. And they're worried that if if Nutanix goes private equity, that the exact same thing is going to happen. And now you're you're kind of stuck because you don't have any other options. Exactly, exactly. And and you know the the other if we look at it, is there uh, if you think about it, is there something which is really uh, unique or exceptional, which kind of makes you think, okay, I'm running my technology stack on Nutanix, and I have no way to get out because unique and so important for my business that I need to stick with them at all costs. And if you think about it, well, it's separate converge, but well, you get vSAN or you have any other options on the market. You may be running on AHV, but in the end, you could say hypervisor is a prototype technology. So what kind of blocks me from going to whatever, you know, I'm, I'm going to throw names here, you know, Hyper-V or Xen or VMware. If you're stuck on the VMware ecosystem, it's a bit different. Maybe uh, migrating of that is a bit more complex and you may want it for stability whatsoever, but it's not like there is any bits of technology here which is unique or exceptional in 2022. It is in a way or another somehow commoditized. So, I mean, if the company ends up, you know, being sold out to an equity, uh, it's going to suck for customers again, but always if you were on HV, well, you're going to migrate to something else. It's going to cost you money, but ultimately, if you need to save and hypervisor, you know, virtualization is not strategic to you, then you'll try to go to a, to an open source platform and maybe you will kind of, you know, 
some will gobble up the fact that you need to uh, make things. That is going to be a bit more complicated. If it's converged, you know, infrastructure and storage, well, there are options out there as well. So I think that ultimately it is not, uh, let's say, something, uh, it, it, it's going to be an annoyance for customers. It's not going to be a major pain point. That's the way I perceive it. And one other thing that the private equity investors need to consider in all of this as they're thinking about whether or not they want to buy this, Nutanix could be the last thing keeping companies having on-premises infrastructure that they're using. If you see that your vendor of choice is going to get purchased and there's no other alternative or the other alternatives are so expensive to move to that you don't want to do it, then maybe you're just going to transform your workloads and move them into the cloud like people have been telling you to do for years, right? Well, if that happens, and a lot of the Nutanix customers today move their workloads to AWS, Azure, um, GCP, then not only does Nutanix lose revenue, they also don't have a market for the parts that they would want to sell off because nobody's going to want them if the companies that or the customers that were buying before suddenly don't have a need for it. And so they literally could create a poison pill that would ultimately wipe out the market for the company that they wanted to buy up and get rid of. And then now they're left holding the bag with nothing to do. So it's, it's tricky. That's one of the reasons why we don't work in finance is we, you know, stick to the tech and you'll never have any problems because you don't have to worry about investments and rates of return and things like that. All right. Well, uh, there's a few exciting things that are going on this week that we wanted to tell you about. Uh, one of them is Oracle Open, or I'm sorry, Oracle Cloud World. It's happening this week uh, in San Francisco. Uh, also happening this week in the Bay Area is the OCP Summit, and specifically the CXL Forum is going on. Uh, if you're in the Bay Area, you should totally check it out. Um, Stephen Foskett's actually there right now. He's going to be doing some exciting stuff uh, around the CXL Forum at OCP Summit. Also happening this week is Tech Field Day 26. If you want some more details on all the cool stuff that's happening there, make sure you head to the website, techfieldday.com. I know that we're going to have a couple of great presentations. Um, and also coming up is Storage Field Day. So Storage Field Day 24 is taking place November 2nd through the 4th. So, you know, just a few short weeks away. Um, more great people on the website there as well. So techfieldday.com is your home for all things related to Field Day. And if people want to check out some of the stuff you're doing, Max, where can they go to find that? Uh, they can find out most of the stuff at techonplug.io slash blog, or they can find out some of the research I write with uh, my colleague Ariane Timmerman at gigaom.com. Yes. And uh, as a reminder, the Rundown publishes every Wednesday around 1230 Eastern time. Uh, you can find it on our website at gestaltit.com. You can find it on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash gestaltitvideo, or you can just subscribe to it in your favorite podcast application. Um, just look for Gestalt IT Rundown. You can get the uh, rundown of the news without the video, just the audio. If you want to do it while you're running or mowing the yard or, you know, whatever, whatever you're doing to relax. Uh, we'll be back next week with uh, more great news stories, so make sure you stay tuned. We hope that you have an amazing Wednesday, and we will see you in a week.